we are in the middle. <clears throat> We're in the middle of a lot of different things. And when Derek asked me to teach, I decided the first place I needed to go was back to my journals, because that's usually where my best thoughts are. I'll accidentally say something really wise or thoughtful or personal about myself in a journal. And as I was going back to my journals, I found about a year ago, what I was writing about was how uncomfortable and horrible it feels to be in the middle, in the middle of so many things. A year ago, I was applying to get a job, and everyone knows how awful that is. <laughs> Being in the middle of waiting on emails and waiting on people to respond, trying to convince people that you're good enough, that you're worthy enough to take a chance on, it's the worst. I hated it. I was in the middle of being in Houston. I was about seven months into my time working there. And I was just kind of getting there with the friendships I had that felt comfortable. I felt like I was just getting there where I could trust people. I had a small group. I was beginning to tell people like the deeper parts of myself. And it was awesome, but I was still just in the middle. I hadn't really figured out who my people were yet. And I was in the middle of dating. And dating is the worst experience in the world. <laughs> because you're so close and you're loving it. And I was dating a person that three months in, I was like, I'm going to get married to this person. And we were at 17 months. So I was like, oh. We're right there. We're beginning to get closer. We're beginning to understand each other more. But there are these barriers. And you can't really get to the finish line on understanding each other and sharing everything and just feeling close and having time together. And I hated being in the middle of that. And a year later, I'm still in the middle. None of those things. I'm here, I'm in Iowa, I'm working at a church. I, I feel really confident about being here and I feel so much support and love from my, the staff here. And I just love the Quad City, so I'm not in the middle of that anymore. Only seven months into my time here, I actually have so much more community and people I can trust than I did when I was in Houston. I've got my small group, I've got people who know the more intricate details of my heart and where I struggle and have challenges. And I'm not married or engaged, so that clearly didn't work. <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing. And I see, I see where she's at, and I'm so excited because she is so fulfilled. And, and we both had so much peace when that relationship ended that we were going in different stories, and we're both excited for each other. And so I'm not, I don't regret that. I'm, I'm joyful, and I'm past it. But I'm still in the middle of a lot of things, and it's hard. So why do I still feel stuck in the middle when I'm not in the middle of those things? That's kind of just what I want to talk about, is that uneasiness, that discomfort, the feeling of not really being sure, feeling like we almost are there, but we aren't. And a lot of us understand that emotion. It's hard, and it's uncomfortable. I get to talk about the series, Beyond Me, which is discussing this topic that a lot of us don't like. I, my life has been very me-centered. A lot of us are very me-centered. It's what do I need? What do I want? What do they think of me? What do I think of me? What does God think of me? Truthfully, like 80% of our thoughts are usually focused on ourselves. We, even the humble people are like 60%. <laughs> so it's a, it's a really hard process to come to the conclusion that God's story might be beyond me. But it's the reality. And to be really honest with you, my story has been about me for most of my life. When I was really young, 
like eight or nine years old, I began kind of dreaming about this promised land of what I wanted my life to be. I was pretty sure at like nine years old, I knew who I wanted to marry, and I was excited about it. I knew that I wanted to to marry someone and have a family. At nine or 10 years old, I already had this dream scenario. And it was fun, I enjoyed it. it. I saw that if I could get to this promised land of these things that I was crafting, I would be most fulfilled and most satisfied, and I could just sit there and enjoy it. And I remember at 10 years old, my best friend Ben and I were back on my back porch, and we decided at 10 years old that we were gonna be each other's best men at our weddings. And we began planning our best men's speeches. (laughs) I was 10. (laughs) And that sounds super mature, but the reality is like 30 seconds later, we got a can and we put it up on a hook. And I stepped 20 feet back and I told him, I bet you I can knock that can off with this baseball. And so I threw it and I hit the can, which is really important, but I also hit the window to my parents' bedroom (laughs) that's still cracked and still isn't fixed. So I get to see it every time I go home. So I wasn't super mature, I hadn't like gotten there, but I was just, I was someone who felt a lot and I knew what I desired and what I wanted. And I had my promised land prepped. And as I got older, it expanded past just the, having Ben as my best man and finding the girl. It, It included this dream house. When I was looking at colleges, I started looking for apartments and I saw the kind of apartment I wanted and I started thinking about the house I wanted. As I got into college, I started enjoying cooking. I went on a trip to the Appalachian Mountains, so I was like, I'm moving to Tennessee, that's where I go. And it began growing, and as I cooked, I wanted to go somewhere with good food and farmer's markets, and then I got introduced to coffee, and I started loving coffee. Then I met Sam Calloway, and I was like, man, I gotta get Sam Calloway to make me pour overs for the rest of my life. (laughs) And so I had, (laughs) he's right there, which is really funny. And this, this image looked perfect in my head. All the while I was imagining and dreaming, I was trapped in a malicious battle with anxiety and fear and poor thoughts about myself. And I had these unhealthy habits I hadn't figured out. And this left me with so little energy that I didn't have time to try to sort those things out and fix them. Instead, I spent my time imagining what my life could be. I didn't ask for help or get anyone's influence to speak into my life. Instead, I just kept it to myself and began daydreaming all the time. And I felt really stuck. And I thought that if I could just get to those things that I wanted, that all the hard stuff would end and I could finally be happy. And if I could sum up what I wanted more than anything in the world, I wanted this place of comfort. I wanted to be comfortable. I wanted all that I needed and wanted and I wanted to just stay there. But being unable to deal with those unhealthy things, I was going into high school and I had a lot of stuff I needed to, graduating high school and going into college, I had a lot of stuff I needed to deal with. I didn't know how to do it. And so I was stepping into college pretty frazzled, pretty confused, pretty unsure. And it was the perfect time for the Lord to chase me down and find me because I was about to fall off the deep end. I was so close to falling apart. And it was at this little retreat with 19 and 20 year old children basically loving me and caring for me. I hopped on a bus and there were people who sat next to me and they were just so kind and thoughtful. I had people ask me questions and they waited for me to answer. I was so used to the point of asking a question was so that someone could tell you what they thought about that question. They wanted to just answer themselves. 
And these people asked me questions, waited for me to answer, and then asked follow-up questions. And I was like, these people are crazy. This is so loving and kind. And after just a couple of days, I was sold, and someone shared the gospel with me, and I was like, man, I want my heart to be about this. I want my life to be about this Jesus. And overnight, a lot of that dysfunction and mess was removed. A lot of it. A lot of it got taken away. A lot of the thoughts I had about myself, I haven't thought since then. So the Lord removed some of it, and that which remained felt manageable. I thought I could manage the rest of it. And I was like, yes, this is it, finally. I get to get to my promised land. This is what I needed. I needed Jesus to change me so that I could get the marriage and the family and the happiness and the kids and the coffee and the mountains. Like, this is what I needed. I thought Jesus was my avenue to get to true comfort. And you know what happened? (laughs) I started classes, and I failed a lot of them. (laughs) I did super poorly, and I was stressed all the time, and I was anxious, and I had these new friends I wanted to hang out with, but I also had to study for the test, and a couple papers didn't get done, and I was a mess. And I was sitting there in the middle of it, (laughs) and I was like, where is all this comfort that I was supposed to receive as a Christian? Where are all these promises? Wasn't God supposed to make this a whole lot easier? And on top of all that, I realized that a lot of the stuff I did to cope wasn't just stuff that was unhealthy. I had this word sin to attach to it. And I saw that I was actually living outside of the way I was made to be. And then this new super uncomfortable feeling started, this thing that kept building, this thing that was shame. And I was like, at points, I was like, I wish I never knew Jesus, so I didn't know this was as shameful as it was. Like, this stinks. This is the worst And just like I did when I was younger, rather than deal with it or ask for help, I was so insecure about the fact that God could see into my heart and mind that I didn't want anyone else to, and so I kept it to myself, and the shame grew. I was asking questions like, where's the comfort I was promised? If I'm a new creation, isn't this anxiety and stress supposed to be taken away? Why do I have to deal with all this? And I think this is a really important thing to talk about because I think a lot of us are in the spot. I've talked to a lot of people recently who are kind of struggling with, like, I'm made new, but I'm still feeling lost. I feel like people have told me my chains are supposed to be broken, but I still feel so chained up and stuck and trapped and shameful. Whether it's someone who feels the full love of Jesus but still feels like they can't kick a habit or someone who recognizes that God is good and he's the healer, but there's someone we love who's still deeply hurt or hurting. How could a God who's loving let this person I love be so hurt? Or maybe a representative of the church has done something that was really harmful, or the whole church has hurt us. Those are just three things I've heard since being here, and there's more. And it's really this question of, isn't life as Christ's kids supposed to be better than this? Where's the comfort of being a new creation? Where does this stuff start getting easier? And I want to talk about that comfort and this promised land. And I want to figure out whether this promised land I have imagined is the same promised land God has for me. And a really good place to start is in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. This is the second letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. 
I like that Barry brought up 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was this letter that Paul wrote to a church that was really dysfunctional and trying to figure out what it meant to be a church. So they were kind of all over the place. He needed to narrow in on what this was, what it means to be a church, why they were a church. And then the second letter we can kind of look at as the what. Like now that you guys see what you're supposed to be, here's what you're supposed to do. Here's how you live out being the church and being people that are changed by Jesus. And so I'm going to read verses 3 and 4 for us really quick. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So clearly God knows comfort. He knows our heart and mind. He knows what we want. He knows how we want to be comfortable. But there's something in me that kind of recognizes there's probably two different comforts here. Because when I try to fill in my comforts into this, it doesn't really work. So there's probably this comfort that I design and this comfort that God designs. So I want to fill in some things to kind of show if this fits or not. And so I'm going to ask you all to shout out some things. And I have my pen. I'm a youth minister, so this is what we do. <laughs> so I would love someone to shout out what their favorite Saturday night thing to do is. D&D. D&D, that's beautiful. Good answer. I love D&D. Okay. Can someone shout out their favorite place to visit? Happy Joe's, okay, that's a bad answer, but it's fine. <laughs> Can someone tell me where they would love to go retire? Australia. Guy, I did not plan for these answers. That's cool. And who has a dream car they've always wanted? Someone just groaned, what does that mean? <laughs> Uh, McLaren. McLaren's a good answer. Thank you. All right, let's fill it in. This is important. This is serious. Praise be to God, the God of all D&D &D campaigns, who provides trips to Happy Joe's when we're in trouble so that we can help people find Australia in their troubles with the new McLaren we receive from God. Thank you for putting up with that. So that doesn't work. That doesn't fit. That's not our God. It doesn't make any sense. So clearly, like, those things that make us comfortable are not necessarily what he's talking about with comfort here. Instead, I think there's another comfort that God's talking about. And I, I looked into what the word originally means where it's used. And every single time that it says comfort there, it's talking about, it's using as this word, paraklesis. Everyone say paraklesis. Y'all know Greek. Congratulations. <laughs> Paraklesis is used 29 times in the New Testament, and 22 of those 29 times, it means encouragement or consolation, as in encouraging someone who is going through something difficult or consoling your child before bed so that they can feel the comfort to go to sleep. That's what it's talking about. And it's really, really different from the state of being comfortable that a lot of us probably attach to this when I read it. I attached to this when I read it. And that kind of comfort doesn't fit with what Jesus tells us. 
that comfort is more like convenience. And there's no word for convenience used in the New Testament that has any real value. It's never used by Jesus to describe the life of a believer. And so instead, we hear about this encouragement, consolation, and we're told that it tells us that the Lord encourages us in our troubles so that we can go and encourage others. I know that's different from our type of comfort because not many people are excited to care for someone who is in pain. Not many people want to console someone who's hurting. That's not, that's not something that gets us excited on Saturday. That's hard. And in reality, I think we're being told by God that our convenience is maybe not as important as we want it to be, as I want it to be. And that really stinks to hear because he loves us and he wants us to feel safe, but he doesn't. His love is bigger than just making us comfortable. And I still want my dream house. I still want the dream marriage. I want to wake up and go out on my porch with my coffee and just watch my kids play. Like, I still have that image. I still have the mountains in the background. But maybe God's version of comfort is different. I'm going to read the next three verses from 2 Corinthians 1. And they're going to clarify on this. And as I read it, I want you to think of God's version of comfort as it's said. If it helps, you can also just fit in the word encouragement where it says comfort to make it easier. But here it goes. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. This isn't about convenience. There's actually a whole lot about suffering in here. And Christ doesn't abound in his suffering so that we can feel convenient. It's actually so that we can be encouraged and it talks about this encouragement, and it produces something that's firm in the hope. And the, it, it's talking about this suffering in this life that's not nearly as comfortable as I wanted this to read. And it talks about that when we suffer as Christ suffered, Christ suffered for reward, and that in our suffering, we are also suffering for a reward. But it's probably not the reward that I have imagined in my head. It actually opens the door to a different type of promised land. I have my promised land, but God's promised land involves something else. It involves this race that we run, this mission that's beyond us where we use our gifts and we share life with people and we encourage and we suffer with them and it hurts. And we do it all and we do this, this process and this race and we share our hope because it, it's Lives depend on it. And we do it in our workplace, and we do it in our families, and we do it in our marriage. We do it in our neighborhood. We do it in this building. We do it outside of this building. There's a race that goes beyond our comfort. And there's a task that we do. And in that task, when we complete that task, that's when God intercedes with encouragement. He tells us that he encourages us in our suffering and when we're completing his mission. So here's a really hard thought. If God's love is beyond our comfort and if his encouragement is meant to encourage us to encourage others, 
if we're not sitting with people and encouraging them, if we're not consoling those who are hurting, if we're not using our suffering and our life to care for others, does God have any reason to comfort and encourage us? He comforts me so that I can comfort others. I have this image of a sponge, and a sponge is only purposeful when it's filled up with water and then squeezed out. And if at my moment of becoming a believer, I got filled up and I never squeezed and nothing ever came out of it, there'd be no reason for the water to continue to go into the sponge. I'd be a really ineffective sponge. I'd be a sponge that gets really gross and moldy and uncomfortable to be around. <laughs> like we, we as people are meant to be encouraged so that we can pour out. It's meant to be a vessel, a highway, a freeway for the Lord to use us. And if we aren't, we're just suffering without a purpose. And I don't think suffering is used just to remind us we need God. That's a part of it. Like we have to remember our weakness. But I think a lot of God's story, and it says here, is that we suffer so that God can use our suffering to encourage others. There's a bigger part to our suffering. I met a really good friend when I first moved here. I need water. I met a really good friend when I first moved here named Dustin. And Dustin and I go to Milltown Coffee all the time. And I was writing the sermon and sharing how excited I was about some of this stuff. And as I was talking, he was like, and I told him, like, I don't feel like anyone's going to believe that I suffer at all because I'm a young person and I haven't lived a whole lot of life. And he's like, you're probably right, Tom. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm going to use his story instead. <laughs> and so he, he told me this story of, um, of this uncle that he had who was in the hospital. And for months and months and months he was there. And Dustin never worked up the courage to go and see him. And he passed before Dustin never went and saw him because of the discomfort of it. This uncle had experienced extreme severe brain trauma to the point where he, as a 45-year-old man, had the emotional capacity of a five-year-old, where he spoke like a child. And the discomfort stopped him from ever going. And he, he carried a lot of regret because of that, and he carried it for years because he wished he had gone and seen his uncle. And then one of his friends was telling him about his wife, um, the friend's wife, who was in the hospital for cancer, and the cancer was slowly taking over her body. And this friend and his wife had been estranged for years and hadn't spoken in a long time. And so he didn't feel worthy enough to go and see her. He was worried that he'd upset her by going. And Dustin got to share this story, and he got to say, hey, man, I was suffering with this regret. And I still regret not going. And you have to make your own choice, but know that there's a regret if you don't go. And God got to use Dustin's suffering to encourage this man to go and see his wife. And when he went, he got to spend an hour with her before she passed. It was almost as if she was waiting for him to come and see him. It didn't remove Dustin's suffering. It didn't make it any easier. But he got to see that God was using something that he did, something that happened to him to encourage someone else. And this is a really simple moment in a life of suffering that each of us is experiencing. Like, this doesn't sound like an outrageous moment of suffering. This is something we have all the time. Some of us are experiencing weekly or monthly, these kind of moments. It seems like they all stack up together. But if we aren't allowing ourselves to process and use that suffering and think of that suffering as beyond just hurt, then we're missing on the chance to encourage people with it. 
If I spend all my time focusing on my form of promised land, if I'm only focused on getting there and I disregard God's mission and God's people and I disregard the gifts he's given me, that means I'm choosing to get my encouragement and my comfort my own way too. It's a heavy thought that we might be pulling away from the joy of being a believer to chase down our own things. It's like us using the suffering Jesus had for us to build up a little stash of treasure for ourselves, to build up a kingdom of Tom. And I share that because unfortunately that's a big part of my story. That's a big part of what I've done. When I first came into contact with Jesus, like I was telling y'all and I was feeling all this shame, I began to get really comfortable with it. I became being good at coping with it and ignoring it. And for the first three years of college, I got really comfortable with my sin. I got really comfortable with attending church every week, and I, I served in preschool ministry, ministry with the Nuggets, and I just read them books. And I got really, really comfortable doing religious activity and feeling good about myself. And honestly, like, I, I was involved in a college ministry. I was doing different things. And so people would look at me and be like, man, that guy knows Jesus. And from the outside, it looked really good. But in reality, I hadn't heard from Jesus in a really long time. And rather than feeling his comfort and encouragement, what I was actually feeling was a whole lot of discouragement. And I was weary and afraid because I, hadn't, I didn't know what I was, if I was following his lead anymore. I decided my senior year that I was going to apply to lead in the same organization I'd been in for three years. And I was just going to do what I was good at. And I'd gotten really good at this, these things, so I was going to go one more year. And it was going to be my victory lap. And I was going to... I was going to coast through and just enjoy senior year and be with my people before I went off and did whatever I was supposed to do. <laughs> in the middle of wanting that, in the middle of uh, the application process and everything, I had a moment that kind of punched me in the gut. Me and my, I lived with four guys, so it was a wild home. I had five guys in a little house with me. And we, we thought we knew everything, so we used to debate things and argue all the time like normal 21-year-old guys. We knew everything. And we would have these little arguments, and they never turned into anything big, but this time in particular, we started on something small that I don't even remember. But we kept going. And as we went, I started feeling my walls come up, and I was defending. And I, was like, and I started getting nervous and afraid that if I was wrong, that he might think something lesser of me. So I started fighting with more arguments and things, and I kept trying to fight to be right. And then the other three roommates joined with him and were trying to talk me down because I was arguing so much and I was getting emotional and heated. And we kept arguing and we kept fighting and I was getting frustrated and I was hurting and I started getting terrified. Like I could feel like my brain like shouting at me like, you, this isn't, stop fighting, stop fighting, it's not worth it. But I wanted so badly to be right and we were going and going and going. And then I just crumpled. After two, two hours of arguing about something stupid, I realized I didn't even remember what my argument was. I don't remember what side of it I was on. I just fell down and I started crying in front of my four roommates. And I just started apologizing. I was on my knees in my college living room just freaking out. And they didn't know what to do, but they kind of sat with me. And as I was like crying and trying to speak, I realized that the night before they had gone out to go get dinner, 
And they just didn't invite me because I was in a Zoom call. So it was not a big deal. But they, they, they just went out. And when I came out of the Zoom call, they weren't there. And it went, they were just going to go quick. And it ended up being a couple hours. And they came back. And for some reason, as I was thinking about it, I had this little voice in my head that was saying, they didn't invite you because they wanted to go talk about you. And there's things that they're saying about you. They don't, they don't think you're good enough. They don't think you're smart enough. They're annoyed by you. They wish you'd move out. Just these little, this little whisper in my head, and it continued all that evening and that next morning and that afternoon until we were in this argument. And it had built up so much that I felt like I had to fight for my life. And I was so desperate to prove that I was good enough. And now I'm on the floor crying, not feeling good enough. <laughs> and they started comforting me and loving me and processing with me. And they're like, Tom, we really like you. <laughs> And it was in that moment of being on the floor that I felt the fullness of a God of comfort and compassion, a God that wanted to be with me and encourage me in my hurt and my suffering. I felt closer to God than any amount of years of service to the church or any amount of religious activity. I felt most close to God when I was crying on my living room floor about an argument I started. And it was a hundred times more rewarding than if I had done it any other way. And about a week later, I was sitting with a mentor, and I was processing this with them, and I asked him, like, why did this happen? <laughs> like, what did I do wrong to cause this? And he told me that God can kind of use two different methods to kind of humble us and bring us back to himself when we get prideful. He can either, over a long period of time, give us little moments to provide us humility and work through people talking to us and moments, or he can completely humiliate us because we've gotten so far that we, can't, we aren't listening anymore. And I needed the humiliation way. And after that, I decided that I didn't want to do the same comfortable stuff because this moment of discomfort was the most important moment of being with God that I'd had all of college. And so I pulled my application, and I decided that I really wanted to do something that didn't make sense. And so I started inviting guys who were messed up and confused and needed someone to love them like me into my house every week. And there were a lot of them, because I had a lot of struggles and issues, and so I had a lot of guys I connected with, and so they'd come over and spend time with me every week. And when we'd meet up, we decided that we wanted to pray together. And so we started the 6 a.m. Thursday prayer meeting at Burger Mojo, a 24-hour burger restaurant in our college town. Burger Mojo played 24 hours of 90s hip-hop and R&B <laughs> really loudly. <laughs> and so we'd meet up there every Thursday. And we'd write through prayer requests, and we'd pray, and we'd kind of be like tapping our foot and kind of like bobbing our head. And it was awesome. It was great prayer. And I decided that there were 50,000 people on my campus, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to go tell people who didn't know Jesus about him. And I'd spent years telling myself that I was really good at talking to Christians, and so my job was to encourage Christians so that they could go and do that. And he humbled me a little bit because I wasn't, that, that, that was a part of me too. I needed to do that. And so I started trying to share my faith with people. And I was so bad at it. <laughs> I made people uncomfortable. I shared it wrong. <laughs> like forgot Jesus or something. Like it was bad. Like, and I kept doing it and it kept being bad. And I was not good at any of it, but I kept feeling God's comfort. And every time I'd mess up, He'd come and spend time with me afterward, and he'd comfort me and make me feel better. 
And when I would get stuck and not feel God's closeness, I now had this moment to remember that maybe I've been getting a little bit too comfortable. And that maybe this distance is because I have just gotten really good at being comfortable and doing what I do. Maybe I need to go share this with someone to help me see where I'm getting messed up because I don't want to be humiliated again. I don't want to cry on my living room floor again. And it was in this place of discomfort where I had the confidence to go and apply to work at a church in Houston and figure out if being on a church staff is what I wanted to do. And it was the discomfort from that year that gave me the confidence to move across the country and be here and be a part of this mission to see these cities become something more than what they, what they are, that there's so many lost people here. And I'm willing to get out of my comfort zone now because I've seen that every time I've done that, it's way better than when I'm comfortable. And he's leading me in discomfort to go beyond the things that make sense to me to try to do whatever it takes to help people that I bump into at coffee shops and disc golf courses get to know about the hope I have. And I'm still doing it really bad. <laughs> but our God is bigger than our comfort. And he makes being uncomfortable the greatest thing we can do. Our big idea today is that God uses our discomfort as his best tool to encourage others. And that's a big statement, but it's a statement that's backed by a lot of being a not very useful tool to the Lord. Of being good at doing religious activities and things, but it was actually the moments of discomfort where something happened that was fruitful. It's where I stopped being important and he started being important. And like I said at the beginning, we're all still in the middle. We're either in the middle of death, a new life, or we're in the middle of new life, an eternity. And there's, there's a task for each of us there. If you're someone who's between death and new life, you're like I was five and a half years ago, where you're just living to get to the end of this 80 or 90 years and hope that there's a hope or a promised land that's worth it. And I don't think it's there. And the story I was told that changed me was about this Jesus who cared enough to take my mess and put his good into me. And he gave me hope and a new life and a purpose. And there's a God of comfort and encouragement that is seeking each and every one of the people here in the Quad Cities and each and every one of the people in this room. Maybe your task is talking to him. And if you're between new life and eternity, we still have a race to run. There is a task for us here. Whether we are 15 or 85, there is a task for us to run toward. And the comfort from my promised land isn't going to fulfill me or make me happy. My image isn't good enough. Most of you have already figured that out. If you've heard me say perfect marriage, you know that I have no idea what a marriage is like. <laughs> you already know that being, becoming one with a person is so much more difficult than I can understand. And if you own a, house, in a, own a house, you know that the perfect house doesn't exist. You know that my perfect house has crayon marks on it. <laughs> and it's got a dishwasher that needs to be replaced. And it's got squeaky doors that I can never fix. <laughs> and so rather than trying to chase that promised land, we have a promised land that we're promised by the Lord. And that as we run this race and do these things that are uncomfortable and we parent hard and we love hard and we invite people in and we do things that are constantly uncomfortable and we're constantly in the middle of this uncertainty. We're doing it so that we get, when we get to the finish line, we can fall across it into the arms of our Lord and just celebrate what he did with us. 
And that when we enter into eternity, we can experience a comfort and a compassion and a joy that's better than anything our minds can even comprehend now. And so I want to give you all a sec to just pray for the Lord to take away the things that you're holding on to tightly to, the promised land or the state of comfort. And I just want to give you a second to pray that on your own. Father, I thank you for the desires we have and the promised lands we have imagined. And I thank you that you care about those things and you care about us feeling safe and close to you. And Lord, I also thank you that your story for us is beyond just our comfort, that you didn't change our lives just so that we could sit back and enjoy Our moments until we get to come see you, but that you've given us something that's going to fulfill us so much more, Lord, that your story involves each of us getting to see you move through us. And so, Father, I pray for those in this room who are in the middle of death and life and who need you to come in and change their hearts. Lord, intercede on their behalf and change their life. Give them a mission that goes beyond them. Father, I pray for those of us in the room who are between new life and eternity, Lord, that we not see our job as finished yet, but that we see the discomfort and the uncertainty of every day as worth it. They get to see you use us, that we are your vessel to be used, and that our discomfort is something that you can make beauty out of. So make beauty out of our mess. Thank you that you know each one of your sons and daughters in here. And thank you that you love us enough to not let us sit back and just rest, but that we have so much joy to experience before we rest with you forever. I pray over each heart in this room, Lord, that you may take away the comforts and give us discomforts joyfully. And Lord, I pray all this knowing that you hear us and you see each one of us. Amen. Amen.